word starts to be used everywhere nowadays and it can end up meaning nothing or it can end up meaning everything. Culture also shapes the way how trainers and speakers speak to their audience. Cultural intelligence is never about flawless behavior, but it's about when I do make a mistake, how do I learn from it so I don't keep repeating the same mistake over and over again. Hello, you're listening to the Leaders of Learning podcast, the podcast that explores learning in the 21st century with educators, leaders, and entrepreneurs from around the world. I am your host, Ling Ling. I'm also the director of Spark Learning Solutions, a company that supports the development of cultural intelligence and intercultural competence of leaders and organizations globally. First, there was IQ, the measure of a person's intelligence, reasoning abilities, and their proficiency on the job. Soon after came EQ, or emotional intelligence, which is the ability to manage one's emotions and the emotion of others. Today, we have CQ, or cultural intelligence, which is the capability to relate and work effectively in culturally diverse situations. In the age of globalization, it is inevitable that we interact and work with people from diverse cultures. But is CQ an innate ability, or can it be learned and developed within us? For facilitators, how can we use CQ to adapt to diverse audiences? How does it look like? Joining us is Dr. David Livermore, president of the Cultural Intelligence Center based in Michigan, USA. He has done tremendous work in the research and education of cultural intelligence globally. All right, welcome to the Leaders of Learning podcast. I'm your host, Ling Ling. Joining us today is David Livermore. He is the president of the Cultural Intelligence Center based in Michigan, USA. So welcome, David. Thank you so much, Ling Ling. Thank you. So mind if you could share with us how you got involved in the uh, Cultural Intelligence Center? Yes. So um, my colleagues and I have been researching the idea of cultural intelligence for about 20 years. And for the first 10 to 12 years of that, uh, we were fully focused on the research side. And it was about seven years ago that we decided to establish uh, the center so that we could begin using the research practically with universities, companies, governments, and individuals. So basically, it was a way to allow our research to come to life. Mm, I see. But the word culture itself, it's widely used and it has uh, various definitions. Mm, so mm-hmm. when it comes to cultural intelligence, how do you define culture? Yeah, it's a great question because as it turns out that... Um, word starts to be used everywhere nowadays and it can end up meaning nothing or it can end up meaning everything. Uh, so uh, there's a couple ways that we define it. I mean, there are the textbook definitions that say a culture are the values, assumptions, beliefs, behaviors that separate one group from another. I think a simpler way of explaining it is a term that perhaps many of your listeners have heard, just the way we do things around here. It's those taken for granted assumptions. So we first and foremost think about that in terms of nationality differences, a Singaporean as compared to an American or ethnicity. But we uh, define culture more broadly than that 
as well. It could be organizational culture, functional culture, uh, generational differences. So we certainly don't use it to constitute just any two differences that two human beings might have from each other, but any group that kind of has a shared set of assumptions that are their kind of collective way of doing things around here, cultural intelligence relates to all those different aspects of culture. Hmm, okay, so based on your broad definition of culture, what does it mean when someone is culturally intelligent? Yeah, so cultural intelligence, as you know, Ling Ling, is the capability to relate and work effectively across any number of different cultural contexts. So given that broad definition that I just offered, this is someone who could adeptly move in and out of a variety of different national contexts, ethnic differences, generational, etc. And of course, with that, when you take as broad a definition of culture as we do, I'm certainly not suggesting you can ever be an expert at all the cultures you encounter, but instead, somebody who's culturally intelligent at least can pick up on the cues, can have some sense of adaptability. And even if they don't know for sure why someone is behaving the way they are, they've got um, a set of tools to allow them to begin to sort through it and begin to make some insights um, about how to relate effectively. Can you give an example of what it's, uh, what it's like for a person to be uh, high in cultural intelligence and low in cultural intelligence? So in a, in a scenario, how will each of them behave differently. Sure. So given the emphasis of your podcast and thinking about learning, I suppose a low cultural intelligence facilitator, trainer, might be someone who observes someone sitting in the class who's not participating. They're not saying anything. And the assumption is whatever that might mean in my own culture. So if in my culture, that means you're bored, you're disengaged, a low CQ facilitator might start to get more animated with that person or shame them or scold them. Somebody with high cultural intelligence who's leading in a classroom and sees an individual participant who's not engaging um, might start to begin to consider, okay, why is it that they're not um, participating or what does it mean to participate? Are, Are they from a cultural background that might say, I shouldn't participate until invited to do so? Or are they somebody who would feel more comfortable participating um, through written input or in a small group format as compared to in the whole classroom? So um, high cultural intelligence is demonstrated by someone who steps back and reads a situation and considers um, the different factors that could be uh, leading into that. Low cultural intelligence, more impulsive, just in the moment, oh, I know what that means, that they don't get it, they're, they're not understanding or something like that. So those would be a couple of the ways that I might describe those differences. Okay, so just to follow up on the example that you just gave, is it natural for someone to be of high cultural intelligence and of low cultural intelligence? Or do you believe it's more of like a nurture kind of thing? Yeah, uh, for sure it's nurtured. So we we focus specifically in our research and in our training on learned, nurtured capabilities. So I, I would certainly acknowledge that there may be some individuals who just the way that they're wired, their personality might be a bit more open to differences in that. But cultural intelligence or CQ, as we call it for short, is absolutely something that can be developed through training, through coaching, through direct experience. I see. And based on your research and perhaps your own experience, does, you know, does culture shape the way we learn as learners? 
Uh, yes, th- this is the almighty question. <laughs> um, because, you know, which comes first? Is it that culture shapes the way we learn? Or, you know, do we just end up getting socialized into that because of the way that our teachers have taught us? Um, I think absolutely it does. Um, you tend to see, if, if we can speak in some broad sweeping generalizations for a moment, that um, Asians tend to learn better with a much more holistic approach to things, give them um, all the different variables that are there. And a lot of Western learners tend to take things more piecemealed um, as they kind of look at things. So that, that might be one example. More practically speaking, um, the individualism of uh, a Western learner is often such that they learn best if they're given a task on their own and allowed to go work on it and think about what does this mean for me? How does this relate to my own challenges in the workplace or my own pursuits personally or professionally? A collectivist, um, somebody from most cultures around the world, South America, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, Asia, uh, they might be far more likely to approach learning based upon um, doing things in a group setting and even working things through by by way of consensus. So I think it does. And I, I think that influence then the way companies set up their training programs. I think it affects the way that we think about um, the ways that we would teach something like leadership, um, even the way that we make assignments and, and do things. I mean, that that You've heard me say before, Ling Ling, that in our work with Harvard University, um, we do some work with their MBA program and 50% of your grade in the Harvard MBA program is classroom participation with scribes sitting at the back of the room who literally write down every time you say something. And, you know, for those students who have been brought up in a Western educational environment, that works fine. They're very free voicing their opinions, asking a question, even if it is a question that was already answered in the reading. Uh, I, again, I'm stereotyping here, but students who come from more of a collectus mindset would be much less likely to just speak up without being invited to do so, or um, maybe even being assigned to do so, etc. So I'd say both um, inside the head, the way that we learn and the way that we put things together holistically versus more compartmentalized, and then very pragmatically in terms of the kinds of instructional styles that are used, culture plays a very big role in how we learn and what we do in that way. Just to follow on the example you gave of a individualist and collectivist learner. So what happens to the collectivist learner if they're put in an environment where they're expected to be more individualist and likewise if it's an individualist learner who's put into a collectivist kind of environment wouldn't that kind of go against uh, their natural way of learning and wouldn't that decrease their level of success in learning in those environments well that that's an interesting question so there's actually some research that shows Um, that there's quite a bit of elasticity to our brains and our ability to begin learning in different ways. So colleague of ours actually did some research on this and she looked um, at, she did fMRI scans of Chinese students studying at the University of Illinois, as well as um, fMRI scans of students from the U.S. who were brought 
up here and showed the both a variety of images and saw a very different brain wiring from the Chinese students as compared to the US students, but then did the same test on those same students a semester later and found that the Chinese students wiring was beginning to more reflect that of the US students. So this was a pretty encouraging insight because it demonstrated that the way our brain operates and the way we learn doesn't have to be fixed. But certainly um, that's going to take some intentionality to think in a different way. I think maybe in a, a more practical sense of what this looks like, I do think that means that for a collectivist student coming in to learn in a classroom that is taught in a more individualist way, fair or unfair, they need to just understand that they are going to be judged um, if they don't participate, if they don't contribute, if they don't speak up. They're going to be viewed as either being really shy or not understanding. Of course, that might not be true at all, but that will be the assumption that's there. I'd say you could say the same thing in a team meeting that happens in the workplace. The collectivist who just decides to sit back um, if they're in an individualist environment is going to be judged perhaps unfairly as not being as confident or competent. So my admin to them would be go outside your comfort zone and find ways that you can uh, feel more confident speaking up. And of course, I would be just a stronger voice at the other way to your question was then, what about a student who's an individualist who's coming into a collectivist environment? They're going to have to realize that always speaking up and being the first person to ask or answer a question or contribute is not necessarily going to be viewed with respect, but you might actually be viewed as, ah, you know, why so cheeky? You always have to speak up. Why do you think you're all that? Um, so I, I think either direction, there needs to be some adaptability. I know part of what uh, we may have the chance to interact about too is then what what does the instructor need to do from a culturally intelligent perspective in that viewpoint if you have both those students in the same classroom. Yeah, so that's a good way of going to the next question that I have. So we've talked quite extensively about how culture shapes the learners, but it culture also shapes the way how trainers and speakers speak to their audience too. And since we're both trainers and public speakers, I would think quite often we speak to diverse audience and audiences that are different from our cultural background. So what were the biggest challenges you faced when speaking to unfamiliar audiences? <laughs> this is a really tough question to answer um, because as one who teaches cultural intelligence, but then you have to apply it yourself as you're teaching and all the more right. so I feel vulnerable doing it because you've sat through a whole week of listening to me teach <laughs> Ling Ling. So you might be calling me out here going, wait a second, you didn't actually do that. Um, <laughs> boy, the challenges, there's so many, uh, you know, I think part of my style of facilitation and presenting is to bring a personal element to it. So it wouldn't be unlike me to share stories about my family or share stories about just personal incidents. Something that a lot of U.S. presenters do that is often very well received in the U.S. is to tell self-effacing stories. And I've run into that. Um, is being a stumbling block at times where I thought I was really gaining credibility with an audience by starting right out, by sharing a self-effacing story at a, an event that I had been invited to speak at in China, only to find out that the interpreter was not translating my story. <laughs> and later <laughs> on being told, um, well, first of all, we weren't entirely sure how it was relevant, but secondly, 
I was, the translator uh, began to share, I was concerned that this would cause the organizers to lose face if the very first thing that these people heard from the so-called esteemed guest was <laughs> them telling this self-deprecating story. So I don't know. I, I feel like I have as many questions on this as answers because I, with that, mm-hmm. I'm struck by... Um, I have to be true to myself. I have to be who I actually am as a presenter. And, you know, for me to totally force myself into something different is is not going to be real. But on the other hand, for me to be fully (laughs) unfiltered who Dave might be with one audience in the U.S. with a different audience in China is is not going to allow the message to get effectively communicated. So I, I think just as we would teach in our cultural intelligence work with leadership or in negotiation styles, it's this, it's this balance of saying, I need to adapt some part, but not go so far that I've kind of lost myself in the process. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I would say broadly, yeah, those does. are some of it. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'm sure you've faced a lot of the same thing with a lot of your globe trotting and facilitating, huh? Oh, yes, definitely. I I take the same approach as you do, because I know that if I adjust too much to the point where, you know, I lose my sense of self, I Mm. come off as inauthentic or or not truly me. So I think that doesn't uh, help in engaging with the audience, because when you speak to an audience, you want them to be engaged with you. You want to be connected with them. But if you cannot be truly yourself, I don't think they can see who you are Mm -hmm. as a person. Uh, and at the same time, too, for myself, what I do is I try to be, and pro- probably this is a collectivist kind of approach as well, is that uh, I try to be as warm as possible and as mm. friendly and informal. So that gives a sense uh, where, you know, I'm coming here for a serious program, but we don't all have to be serious. I want us to be open to be able to share as much as we can. Uh, and I think it helps that because I look... Asian. I'm very much an Asian person that people are more open to sharing with me. I, I don't know if that kind of also yeah. influences the way people interact with me is just because I am ethnically Asian. So people feel like they can relate to me more if I'm speaking to an Asian audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I totally see that. In, in similar regard, because we are sometimes addressing difficult issues um, of diversity and privilege and bias. Sometimes people will say to me, like, isn't this awkward for you as a white American guy talking about diversity? Like, aren't you guys the ones who are the problem? Um, and I say, you know what? I, I think there's things I can say to my fellow white males that maybe you, Ling Ling, couldn't get away with. And the, the same thing that you've just noted, that you're going to have a different level of acceptability and warmth um, with some fellow Asians in similar regard. I, I think there's some ways that I can go hard on my fellow mm-hmm. Americans or fellow white guys and say, hey, look, we, we have some issues we need to address here. And I think to a certain degree, maybe I'm conscious or unconscious about it. I do adapt according to you know how the audience perceive me. So if I'm too warm or too friendly of a, an approach and I kind of sense like, okay, uh, the audience perhaps think I'm not serious enough or I'm not formal or not competent enough, then I'll, I'll buck up and become more formal, uh, a, a little bit more authoritative maybe. So I, I think I do adjust to a certain extent, but not to the point of losing myself as how you've mentioned before with yourself. So I I think what you just mentioned is one of the greatest challenges I feel as a facilitator in certain contexts is like you, 
I'm constantly trying to read a room. And if I'm in a culture that doesn't give you much, <laughs> it's so hard to know. Um, the, the kind of example that I was just giving with an individual of, you know, low cultural intelligence is assuming that the individual who isn't participating is bored or doesn't understand. But then if you have a whole room full of that, um, and as you know well, it, it may not mean at all that they're bored or disengaged. It might just be they're a very neutral culture. So that that's a piece I find really tough because um, I want to adapt and flex based upon the energy that I sense in the room. And sometimes that's really yeah. hard to do. I think it also helps that I come from a high context culture as well. Mm. So a slight twitch in the face and I'll know like, okay, I know what that means. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I need to but bring you with me everywhere so you could be sending me a text going, no, that, that story isn't working. And um, so just to follow on, on that, uh, before you go on into a presentation, do you prepare yourself in some way before you, yeah. before you start speaking? What, what do you do? Yeah. So, I mean, in one way, what, what we would hope any presenter would do, right, in terms of just kind of what are the felt needs of the group that I'm going to address and how does this content, how do I tie it to that? How do I make them feel like, whoa, this was really relevant to us. You didn't just pull another one out of the file that you've done 15 times before. Um, but more specifically, as it relates to the cultural differences, if at all possible, I like to have a, a cultural broker or coach um, who knows the culture I'm coming from and knows the culture that I'm addressing, who can just give me some prep on the front end of here's ways that they might perceive you coming in, here's some things you may want to avoid, and better yet, if they're going to be someone who's going to actually be present there where they, I was joking with you about, can you go with me and send me texts, but quite literally mm -hmm. to say, can they be someone that will give me unfiltered feedback you know especially if it's a multiple engagement and there's a break and walk up to them and is this working what do i need to address so to, to speak of a specific example i uh had a series of speaking engagements over about a, a three-day period with a large company in japan a couple of years ago and i knew um, that my rate of speech was going to be an issue. Um, they, the audience I was told were English speakers, but um, certainly not native English. So they needed mm -hmm. me to slow down and wanted me to you know, speak more concretely. So part of how I prepared, I don't very often do this anymore, but I did actually write a full manuscript of the presentation. I practiced it out loud just to kind of get a sense of the the cadence and I tried as much as possible to you know get rid of idioms and jargon and that and then I had talked with this coach that I had and said to them hey that I mean part of the way that I prepared was based upon their feedback but then knowing they were going to be there I said hey, I'm going to be checking with you at the breaks. Just be super blunt with me. And I felt like she would because we had already established that kind of relationship. So mm -hmm. I started and I had, you know, written right across the top of my notes, keep it slow and felt like, okay, if anything, I might be really insulting these people because I'm going so slowly. But, you know, felt like I, I need to try this. Check with her at the break. And she's like, ah, oh, yeah, it's it's good. It's just it's still fast. I'm like, really? She's like, yeah, too fast. Slow down. I'm like, okay. So next time I slow down a little bit more, come to her at the lunch break. She's like, 
Yeah, maybe just take a breath between every sentence. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so um, by the end of the, the three days, she maybe she was just being nice to me. She's like, hey, I think you found a more Japanese-friendly cadence to speaking. But it was amazing to me, even though I teach about this stuff and you know have certainly done a lot of speaking to different audiences of just how hard a work that it was. And so anyway, way back to your question, if I had not prepared to reduce my content significantly, write it down in that, I think I would have been in a really bad way because if I just went with my default style, I would have either lost people or at least the impact of it would have been much less than what hopefully it, it did actually end up being. It reminded me of a, a situation where I had to do the same thing as well. Uh, and it was also for a Japanese audience too. And and reading off of the audience, I didn't prepare as much as you had, but I did have someone locally who would give me feedback on how fast I was. And and she would help me interpret certain uh, technical jargons for the audience too. And this, the rate of how I spoke in the audience was significantly slower than even my slowest pace. Mm. So I completely understand what you're talking about. <laughs> And I remember I had to advise uh, other speakers too from uh, native English countries to speak a lot slower in countries where the audience is and their English is not their native uh, language. Well, and with the amount of time you've spent in Singapore and KL for that matter, I'm not surprised that speaking quickly is also part of your default mode. <laughs> oh yeah, especially Singapore. I do, I do notice a difference right. between uh, speaking in Singapore and in Malaysia. You've given an example of where you've done the right preparation and you've had a coach or someone you can speak to uh, during breaks to get good feedback. But what if you hadn't, well, you've done all the preparation and still, and checked in with the local contact, but something still didn't work for a reason, some reason or another. So any tips that you can share with uh, trainers on how to recover from such situations? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, at the risk of just putting out a really lame platitude, on the one hand, I would say, don't take it too personally, you know, don't take it too seriously. It's not the end of the world. Thankfully, in training, our um, mess ups are not like if we were heart surgeons or something. So <laughs> I, I don't mean to be too dismissive, but sometimes I think our identity is so rooted in it that it'll just ruin me for days. And then I'm like, wait a second, I got to see this in perspective. Um, so that, that, that'd be one piece of it. I think part of it is, you know, that there certainly have been moments where I've just, I've said something that I knew was not appropriate or um, just didn't work and just owning it in the moment. And well, certainly those things can't be can't be calculated and planned in it, when they do happen if we can respond with a level of humility grace and dignity sometimes those are the most memorable moments for people that show our humanity and to just say you know what i i can see that what i'm doing right now isn't working real well etc so that that'd be another piece um but i i guess the other thing i would say and this is more of saying it to myself as to any other fellow facilitator is to just beware of not allowing a small perhaps even vocal majority in a group to necessarily assure you that something hasn't gone well because there's been times when i've thought 
well, I really whiffed that or I got some really hard pushback from some really vocal people. Then you read the evaluations and that, okay, actually most people found it helpful. And if anything, maybe the critique was that they wished I as a facilitator had shut down some of the critics earlier because they felt like they hijacked the whole session. So, um, yeah, I, I, I guess these things aren't necessarily all that different from what would be true even if you're not with a culturally diverse audience, but I think they're all the more true um, when we have learners from different environments because we may be reading um, input or reaction or non-reaction to things we're doing um, altogether wrong and assume it means something that it doesn't. Um, but, you know, having said that too, I, I think we do need to own the mistakes and it's like we talk about on the whole with cultural intelligence cultural intelligence is never about flawless behavior but it's about when i do make a mistake how do i learn from it so i don't keep repeating the same mistake over and over again one more piece just what i think about your question of what about you did you thought you did everything right and it just doesn't go well yeah. sometimes there's a reminder too that there may be people in the room who have something really earth shattering going on in their life that you have no clue about. Or I've stepped into places before where I'm like, what is going on here? And only later found out that there was a major rift between two groups in the room that really had nothing to do with what I was training, but there was all this other animosity. So I guess, I guess it comes back to my initial, don't take it too seriously because sometimes there's a situation going on that's entirely not about how you are or aren't facilitating. Of course, I'm not saying that to give us an out on not preparing, but also to avoid us thinking that we can always fully control it. Yeah, I could remember certain situations where I've gone in for a training or a presentation, but only to realize that there's a lot of uh, tension in the room because of whatever's going on in the office or whatever's going on between, you know, even two people in the room that everyone else knows right. about except for the facilitator or the trainer. And it's <laughs> right, not something right. that you will know or someone will share with you unless you've already established that relationship or a spy in the, in the local office or something like that. So you wouldn't know. These things you can't prepare for. I just had a fellow facilitator share this with me a couple of weeks ago too, but sometimes too, when trainings are set up to be a quote unquote pilot and people come in um, being told they're supposed to like vet this, to think about using it within the organization. And of course I get that. I think companies are smart to do it, but when you frame it that way and people walk in purposely looking for what's wrong with it, mm -hmm. um, I think that just sets the facilitator up. So I, I would encourage facilitators that part of the preparation is, even if you have a group of learning and development people who are coming in to, to vet this, to really admonish them to engage in this fully as a participant. And then afterward, we can step back and ask what needs to be changed, et cetera. Thank you so much for sharing uh, all about cultural intelligence and how it influenced learning and how we as facilitators, trainers, speakers can be more highly intelligent, uh, highly culturally intelligent <laughs> when we engage with our different audiences. Thank you so much for your time, David. Thank you, Ling Ling. That was Dr. David Livermore, president of the Cultural Intelligence Center based in Michigan, USA. 
highlights from this episode and contact details of our guest is available on our podcast website at www.leadandlearn.co that is www.leadandlearn.co in our next episode, we will speak to J.C. Sekhar, CEO and founder of Acquizen Technologies, and we will be discussing about artificial intelligence. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcast. Every rating helps us build credibility and attract new listeners. This helps us keep making the show. This is your host, Ling Ling. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Learning podcast. Podcast.